Hello, everybody, and welcome back to a special episode of the Media Boat Podcast, where we are doing our year-end wrap-up for 2023. We've gone through music. We've gone through video games. Mm-hmm. We've gone through television. And mm-hmm. here we are, going to wrap up movies as we get into the penultimate episode of this end-of-the-year wrap-up. Um, because we still have one left. Spoilers, we'll get to that later. Uh, But my name is Mike. His name is Matt. My name is Matt. His name is Mike. Thank you for joining us for this exciting episode of Wrap Up for 2023. As he mentioned, this is where we look back on the year that was and pick our favorites of the year. If you're not familiar with the format, the first half of the show, we will be going back calendar, like looking at each month of the year, talking about the news stories that happened, the most important news stories, that is. And at the end of that, we will pick one story that represents what we think the most important movie story of the year is. Then the second half of the show, we'll be capping up our five favorite movies of the year for each of us. And then at the end of that, we'll pick one movie to represent the Media Boat Podcast's favorite movie of the year. So without further ado, you're here, you're cozy, I've got this beanie that I haven't worn since we played, um, um, what was that, uh, the, like pick up a uh, uh, kickball uh, like six years ago, and I'm ready to go. <laughs> hey, we were balls deep then. <laughs> we were, it's true. All right, uh, let's go uh, back to January of 2023 and start recapping yep. the year. Jump back into our time machine all the way back, back, back to January where... We had a couple of continuing and wrap-up stories from the previous year, including Movie Pass. That's right, that Movie Pass. Movie Pass. And it, it had raised a seed financing, which was led by Animoca Brands, which was a Hong Kong-based software company. Mm-hmm. Um, they actually did kind of make a comeback <laughs> in select markets, if you were available for it. Uh, they are still around. It's not dead yet, as of this recording. Mm-hmm. But also, I'm waiting to see if it will expand. <laughs> I mean, oh, something interesting that happened in 2023 was kind of in the aftermath of Movie Pass is that the theater chains themselves created their own versions of Movie Pass and mm-hmm. are now trying to sell you on it. I know that uh, Regal has one. I know that AMC has one. Yeah. They're really trying to push that. And it was because of Movie Pass that I think that it sparked the idea of like, oh, well, we can just do this on our own yeah. terms. We can give you a flat rate and you can see all the movies that you want in a week. Yeah, if if you want to do that to yourself, which I sure don't. I used to, and I <laughs> at one point did do that. Yeah. I lived in that movie theater. Alas, it's a different time now. Yes. Alas, that is, oh God, is that five years gone by now? That was a long time. 2017. Yes, that was five years ago. Six years. Six years. Oh, my God. <laughs> and counting. And counting. Speaking of counting, uh, James Cameron continues to count his money as Avatar The Way of Water grossed $2.05 billion mm-hmm. at the global box office. And that puts uh, at the number five on the list of all time. Something like that. And um, yeah, and just like the original Avatar, uh, a year later and no one is talking about it. <laughs> that's okay he'll make even more movies and he'll still make more money yep it doesn't matter people will see his movies regardless of whether they're actually any good 
But where you might see them might be different because Regal Cinemas, the second largest movie chain theater in the U.S., announced that it would close 39 locations. Yeah, very much a sign of it of the times then in January when uh, Hollywood still still was kind of reeling from uh, the lack of audiences from the, uh, the the pandemic years. Flash forward to now, and it's a very different story. Uh, studios are bragging about how people have flocked to movie theaters. Movies are back, quote unquote, thanks to uh, a bunch of like a series of big hits this year. Which we'll, we'll get, get into to that later. Uh, the series of sequels and IPs mm-hmm. that graced the top of the box office yeah. at the end. But yeah, the doom and gloom is largely over. Is basically interesting about this story is that yeah, I think that Regal is now in a completely different spot financially than they were here. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we get to February, also in a completely different spot, DC, as yes. they have announced officially, rumored but now official, James Gunn would be heading up DC Films, and he released his upcoming slate of films. Yes. But at the same time, established that the current projects that were part of DC's uh, previous tenure were going to be labeled under DC Elseworld. So they <laughs> still exist with the DC canon, just their side projects now, not part of the main uh, DC universe that James Gunn is crafting. And in a wonderful stroke of timing... We just saw uh, this past this weekend uh, the release of the final former DC Universe film, uh, which is the sequel to Aquaman. So that series is now wrapped up in a little bow and we will uh, move on to the James Gunn led universe uh, starting next year. Yeah, we will. Um, Let's see here. Speaking of Warner Brothers, uh, CEO David Zasloff announced that newly installed studio lead Mike DeLuca and Pam Abdi had brokered a deal to make multiple films based on the J.R.R. Tolkien books. So this is separate from the deal with Amazon to make it based off a TV series. We're going back to Middle Earth, and Warner Brothers is back at the helm. Steep uh, reigns of it. Yeah. I mean, no really movement on this in the calendar year, uh, but... Interesting part about this, though, is that the entity they're deal- making that deal with, of course, is the Embracer Group, who bought mm-hmm. the rights to uh, those books. So, yes, uh, they'll have, and they've had quite a year. But this isn't a video games podcast today, so we won't go into that story. No, that's not for this story. That's for next year. But it is related. It does directly impact what the Embracer Group does, so... We'll see what happens with these rights going into next year. We'll see. Uh, But wrap up stuff from February. uh, AMC uh, teamed up with Sightline to initiate a ticket pricing um, initiative based on seat location, a la like theater seating or stadium seating. Yeah, I do believe this did happen and was implemented. Mm -hmm. It's just that nobody was really talking about it. Uh, because most people like to sit where they like to sit anyways and don't really care about eating the extra fees. It's like, what, an extra like 50 cents to a dollar extra? It's not much. And really all it does is discount the front rows where nobody wants to sit. That's really Mm -hmm. all it does. It doesn't really affect most people. Uh, And there's separate deals like, say, the deal that Taylor Swift made where all the tickets were the same price anyways and you didn't have to make that decision. So, No, you just had to make the decision to reserve the seats early right 
Uh, and lastly, Disney, in a stroke of kind of insanity, <laughs> just uh, blabbed out that they would be making <laughs> animated sequels to Toy Story, Frozen, and Zootopia, that they are in development. Yeah. Without saying what stage of development they were in. No surprises here. I mean, later in the year, they'd even confirm that it's not just one, but two Frozen sequels are in the works. Uh, so, yeah, of course, they know where their bread is buttered. And especially after this year, they need some surefire hits. So what better to make sequels to some of your most popular movies? It's funny that we talk about buttering their bread when they need the cheddar. They really do. Yes, they do. They need to make a grilled Ooh. cheese out of this sandwich. Yeah, they do. Ooh, <laughs> throw some short rib into it. Oh, bacon ooh. short rib. Oh, yes. Ooh. Wait, is it lunchtime? No, it's not. No, it's not Oscar yet. time. Yeah, a couple more hours for that. That's right. It's March and it's Oscar time. And <laughs> falling back on last year, everything, everywhere, all at yes. once was the big uh, film as it won every uh, the won the big award of Best Ensemble at the Screen Actors Guild Award on its way to winning Best Director, Best Lead Actress, both supporting acting awards. Best Editing, Best Original Screenplay, and the big one of the night, Best Picture at the Academy Awards. Yes, your favorite movie of last year was also the Academy's favorite movie of last year. And yeah, it swept um, most of the categories that thought it was uh, we thought it was going to. Um, you know, I have mixed feelings about that film, but I get why people love it, and I'm glad it got its flowers. Uh, because, yeah, what better, you know, way to celebrate the burgeoning return of audiences to theaters with movies that people actually want to see and this started kind of a wave that continued through the year i mean i'm just glad that it came out in march of the previous year and then still had momentum yeah. come the following year this people, year yeah into award season people never stopped talking about it is the thing word of mouth really helped that film and was basically the story of that film honestly I think it became a critical and audience darling just by the fact that everybody who saw it told two friends, hey, this thing is crazy. You should see this. That's what I did. I called people up. I never talk on the phone anymore. That's <laughs> true. Uh, speaking of things we don't talk about, Good Burger 2 <laughs> uh, was announced back in March and eventually came out uh, this yeah. year on Paramount+. Plus. Somebody must have watched it. I didn't. I mean, someone watched it because, according to Keenan Thompson and his production studio, yep. they're making more Good Burger-related stuff more. for Paramount+. Plus. Must have worked out pretty well. Well, let's get to something that didn't work out pretty well. Yeah. Jonathan Majors, uh, as he was coming off both Creed Three and Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, was arrested in April in New York City, where he was accused of a domestic dispute. And since then, it's only gotten worse for Mr. Majors. Uh, he was just dropped by pretty much everybody once he was finally sentenced. Uh, so, yes, uh, it's no longer hearsay. We can say that he was actually guilty of crimes. So, yeah. Two of the four counts he yeah. was guilty of. Yes. So he's toast, basically. His career is probably largely sidelined as he kind of rehabilitates his image. In the meantime, his big role at Marvel of Kang of the Kang dynasty um, has to be recast. And we'll see, I guess, next year where they end up going with that. I mean, I assume they're going to either recast him or in what I thought was the funniest term of events, uh, bring back Ryan, was it not Ryan, Ryan Howard? Mm. 
Who, jo- who did Don Cheadle replace? We just did this Ryan. on the other podcast. You couldn't remember his name then either. No, I'll say it's Ryan Howard because Ron Howard's the director. <laughs> it's a different guy, yeah. Yes. It's a completely different guy. Yeah, they bring him Anyways. in and he's the villain. Uh, but yeah, uh, that Jonathan Majors lawsuit and trial literally just wrapped up as yes. of this past couple past week. So we don't have to talk about this anymore <laughs> until he decides to make a comeback. Oh well, god! If oh god! Never. Hopefully, three years. Mm, time. Anyway. Anyways, three years will probably be about the time till we get a sequel to one of the biggest movies of the year, mm-hmm. the Super Mario Brothers movie, as it came out and shattered numerous records in its opening weekend, where it went on to earn two hundred four million dollars. Over the five-day uh, Easter weekend. Yeah, huge, huge opening weekend for it. You also have down here 146.4 million just for that three-day Easter weekend. And yeah. worldwide number of 375.6. So yeah, huge box office smash. Critically a little more mixed. Um, I think even we were a little divided on this. I think you liked it slightly more than I did. If I'm remembering correctly, I liked it slightly more because it did exactly what it was going to do, and it was the safest movie for a family, and that's exactly safe. how Nintendo played it. Safe is really the best word for it. I was hoping it would do a little bit more story-wise. It just really disappointed in that department. It's colorful though. It's entertaining, and yes, it has enough winks and nods to the game playing audience that it's not completely a waste of time. That being said. Compared to the 1993 Super Mario Brothers, a much weirder movie, um, it definitely looks very pale and boring in comparison. Um, so yeah, I guess, you know, yes, it does what it says you'd hope it would. It's a Mario movie. But beyond that, it's just frivolous cotton candy, like something that you watch, just let it wash over you and you immediately forget everything about. Except, yes, I know what you're going to say. Peaches, 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 peaches. <laughs> yes, all those delicious peaches. <laughs> uh well it wouldn't be surprising to hear that super mario brothers movie was the first film of the year to cross the one billion dollar milestone at the global box office yeah no surprises there uh it made a whole lot of money uh the other billion dollar movie of note of the year though we'll get to later and could not be any more different than the Super Mario Brothers movie. Oh, no. We'll get to that uh, later, mm-hmm. as they were the only two mm-hmm. to cross the billion-dollar uh, mark this yes. year. Uh, but coming off the success of Super Mario Brothers movie, Nintendo president Shintaro Furukawa assured that its company shareholders that Nintendo would be using Nintendo Pictures label mm-hmm. to produce more movies based on Nintendo franchises in the future. And we have already seen uh, the other shoe drop on that. The company announced that there will be a live action Legend of Zelda film coming in a couple of years. Um, That will be through this Nintendo Pictures label associating with Sony this time for distribution. Um, And yeah, you know what? Why not? Why not take advantage of the brands that you have? Why not try to pump more money out of these things that are beloved like Mario and like Zelda and whatever else they can think of? Uh, what do you think is next? What do you think they do after Zelda? Do you see Donkey Kong? Do you see more Pokemon stuff? I think you they see don't more really Pokemon have, stuff. They don't really have control of that. That's the Pokemon company that really takes the reins there. Um, yes. 
there's so many opportunities for them. I mean, if trends continue with the space operas, I would go with a Metroid film. That's up there. Uh, I feel like it would have to be totally completely different than these other things that they've done. That is mm-hmm. not a family movie, for instance. No. That you're going to go up for something like Alien, you know, mm-hmm. there. That's the vibe. And I think that maybe they're not quite ready for the, something like that yet. Well, let's go completely opposite side of the spectrum then with Kirby. Kirby could be good. Uh, I could see an animated Kirby film uh, very easily. Voiced by Danny DeVito. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, stop it. <laughs> anyway. Anyways, um, let's see here. Let's go back to some big franchises because we haven't talked about Marvel a lot. No. No. Uh, well, they had released the finality of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 earlier this year. Yes, that did happen this year. Mm-hmm. And there were some key players that were notably leaving the franchise along with James Gunn as he would be exiting the Marvel um, stalls, barn, (laughs) house. I like stalls because I just envisioned the Marvel Studios being a series of bathrooms, which is very funny. There's just which toilet is going to get flushed this time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think like stalls, like horse stalls, right? Mm. Okay, they're bringing this show pony out now. Well, they didn't have enough show ponies this year, but we'll get to that later. Uh, but oh, yeah. we'll get to that later. I mean, yeah, this makes sense. I mean, Guardians of the Galaxy after Volume 3 felt like it was done, that they had said what they wanted to say, and they were moving on. And yeah, the actors probably felt like that way, too. And James Gunn certainly did. Uh, he was already out by the time that thing was released. So yeah. yeah, I think that when the door is shut, the door feels shut. And in this case, I just don't think they need to return to it. They did leave themselves a crack open to say Guardians of the Galaxy may return and that Star-Lord would return. So there will be at some point more Chris Pratt in the Marvel yeah. Universe. Well, of course, he's going to stick around. Uh, he's like, you know, the one that like doesn't need any but the rest of the characters to continue existing. So. He's also the one that needs less makeup. That's true. There's not a whole lot you need to do. You slap that uh, weird mask on him and he's good to go. <laughs> Just give him a jacket and, and you know who he is. You're good. You're not. That's all you need. 80s t-shirts. Yeah, 80s t-shirts. Yep. Uh, and lastly, in May, a judge ruled uh, that he would be throwing out the lawsuit over the nude scene in the 1968 version of Romeo and Juliet after finding that the film is protected by the First Amendment. Yeah, this is a weird one. Uh, We had a few stories actually this year in all sorts of different uh, sections of the show about ancient cases being brought back up. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this was one of them. And yeah, as weird and gross, the context of what who was filmed and in what uh, capacity, uh, it still seems like that ship has largely sailed. You know, 1968 was a very long time ago. So I don't blame anybody especially in a court just being like hey you know what we don't really need to do this anymore that being said just having a conversation about it is interesting but yeah uh still it just feels like does does this pertain to anything right now i don't know it's a weird it's a weird case all right uh speaking of things that pertain to right now 
We won't be discussing any of the WGA or SAG after during this podcast. If you want to hear our thoughts about that, you can go over to the television section end of the year where we discuss that at length. Mm -hmm. um, Everything over on that episode. But yeah, we talked about that. uh, Both strikes on both sides, both the writer strike and the actor strike did affect movies, of course. A lot of stuff was moved around and rescheduled because of it, because uh, actors couldn't do promo. Including my uh, film of the year got moved out. Yes, exactly. But we'll get there. It did affect the year. But like you said, we kind of talked about it already in the television section. And largely it did affect television a bit more. So, yeah, we will. The um, impact was more immediate for television than it is for film. Yeah. But if you listen to the show, you know what's up. You know what had happened. You know what, what went on. So, yeah, we'll be we'll probably just stop there. Yeah. But what we didn't talk about was the other um almost strike that happened with the director's guild yeah uh but they were able to have a tentative agreement on a three-year contract which would agree to wage hikes and a 76 percent increase in international residuals on some of the largest streaming platforms and that would eventually be ratified with 80 percent of the membership voting in favor of the agreement but only a 41% turnout. Yeah. I mean, goes to show you that the DGA is a little less engaged as a union such as the WGA or SAG-AFTRA. It also shows that the stakes are a little lower. Uh, you have, like, in the Directors Guild, it's a little, it probably aims a little toward more the affluent side, less working, you know, like like working people, like more like established people in that guild. And so, yeah, they quickly just ratified the deal that they were already going to make and established it. There was some talk early on. If they did go into a strike, then they would have showed solidarity in all three major sectors. And that would have been interesting strike-wise and labor-wise to get a point across. Did end up happening. And it didn't set up a precedent for the other two guilds. And that's why you saw that strike. because there It would have been precedent. interesting because that would have been all three guilds striking mm-hmm. at the same time. We still won't see it. I don't know if we'll see it next time either. Like we're gonna really three have years. To wait and see, we'll come back three here years. in three years and see if that happens. Maybe so. Until uh, AI starts threatening directors, <laughs> then they'll start picketing. Right. All right. Uh, and last bit of news: uh, beginning this upcoming year in 2024, mm-hmm. films will no longer become eligible for the Best Picture Oscar with just a one-week theatrical release. Uh, but would instead require a lengthier stay in theaters. This is the continuing story of the Academy trying to fight against the uh, upspring in streaming networks, trying to get their movies considered for Oscar buzz. Uh, We've already saw kind of maybe what the last dregs of those will be. We see the big push push behind May, December happening right now. You see Apple TV already adjusting their strategy with the release of the long tail theatrical release of uh, Killers, of the, Killers of the Flower Moon. So you already see some of these streamers adjusting their tactics a bit, giving longer tail for those theatrical releases. But you see others that are still following the old rules like Netflix. So next year will be definitely an interesting vibe shift. You'll see whether streamers like Netflix change their strategy to fit this, or if they just kind of bail on the concept of the Oscars altogether. Because they're getting slowly pushed out. So we'll see. 
they'll start their own awards the streamies like okay. so that's a thing i think that's a thing yeah and then something thing. else <laughs> <laughs> anyway uh anyways uh let's get to casting summer. news in summer as the aforementioned james gunn has decided to cast his newest superman in his upcoming uh dc universe with david Corinsweet from, per- from pearl and the politician set to play superman while rachel brosnahan of the marvelous miss mazels set to play lois lane in the upcoming superman colon legacy film more like the dc of this Mar- mrs mazel the dcs miss mazel <laughs> that we were trying to go with uh-huh. i think you want the detective comic bookus <laughs> miss mazel it's worse that's way worse it is isn't it <laughs> Anyway, Detectivist, I don't know. Superman. Do you think this will be a good Superman movie? I don't know. Who knows? Can you make a good Superman movie again? I don't know. I don't know. Was there ever a good Superman movie? You could argue that that first one was okay. Wait, live action or animated? Live action. <laughs> There's no animated. Well, did they ever theatrically release any of the animated feature length ones during the WB run? Theatrical? I don't think so. I know they did some of the Batman movies yeah, theatrically. They definitely did the Batman, like Mask of the Phantasm. Yeah, Max, Mask of the Phantasm. I don't know about Superman. I don't know if they did that ever. I don't remember if they ever did Superman. So then there's no, I mean, unless you're counting the Super Dog movie they put out last year. That <laughs> I nobody <am> not. remembers. <laughs> That's Super so no, I don't think they did for that. You. But yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, James Gunn, you know, he's made good comic book movies in the past. I guess it's possible that this could be a decent Superman movie. But I don't know anything about David Corinswet. I don't like saying his name. It's gross. It makes me feel gross. Corrin's you don't like wet. saying Corin? Why is the Corinswet? Because it's been out in the, the fields. Dry that Corins. Dry that Corins before you serve it? Yeah. <laughs> Just pat it with a little towel. <laughs> Uh, well, <laughs> while that announcement was made, it was not made at Comic-Con this year, no. as a number of the major studios decided against having a presence, and thus yes. the end of big kind of festival events mm-hmm. tumbles. I mean, again, if you don't have actors who can promo your stuff, there's no reason to have a presence at Comic-Con. Mm-hmm. All that really happened seemed like a very quiet Comic-Con this year. I mean, there were still thousands of people there, and it was still super crowded. But presentation-wise, it was other people that were there, like producers and, like... Directors, <laughs> producers, and Illustrators, I guess, were there. Um, yeah. Comic book writers were there, because yeah. comic books weren't on strike. And so, yeah, so there's stuff to see, but you're right. The big parade of celebrities was just not there this year. Yeah. Um, speaking of parading celebrities, we had the interesting story of Oppenheimer and Barbie combining forces to create Barbenheimer in yeah. July. <laughs> yes, uh, one of the biggest with, stories of the year for certain, certainly. Yes, it's up there for biggest story for story of the year. Uh, but in, during the Oppenheimer um, London premiere, they had to move it up early because of the pending SAG-AFTRA strike. Yeah. Which, good for them on doing that, and also bad on studios for allowing this to happen. 
Right. Uh, but hey, on the flip side of that, Greta Gerwig and Barbie mm-hmm. blew the box office away as they made history with the opening weekend, marking the biggest debut ever for a film directed by a woman. Yeah. Uh, Barbie ended up notching several box office records, including the biggest opening of the year at $162 million. We will talk about Barbie the film later in the podcast, but for now, just like let's briefly just talk about the impact of this thing. This is what I'm talking about when I talked about earlier about how box the box office theater theatrical like going to theaters to see movies really came back. Barbie is responsible for a lot of that. It's responsible for a lot of the momentum, responsible for a lot of the feedback of like people being like happy about movies again. It was a moment, a cultural moment that we just don't have anymore. Um Oppenheimer to a lesser degree, but mostly Barbie. And yeah, congratulations to Greta Gerwig for making a film that not only brought people to theaters, but also made them think about stuff. Like it was, it's a good thought-provoking film on top of being entertaining, on top of being in this cultural meme. And just, you don't see those things combine ever anymore. There just aren't moments like this. And the fact that she could pull it off with a movie that's actually good is just Easily, like I said, part of why this is a story of the year for sure is just like the impact of this moment was just not something we haven't seen in a long time. Hey, save it for the wrap up. Yes. Wait, we'll this is the wrap up. This is the wrap up. Ha. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. Anyway, but yeah, we'll talk more about Barbie the film later. But yeah, just wanted to briefly touch on just how like big this was in the summer. Yeah. Uh, speaking of things that were big in the summer, Lionsgate set to buy is set to currently purchase Hasbro Entertainment what uh, sorry, Hasbro's Entertainment One film and TV business for a cool five hundred million dollars. Yep. Yep. Uh, I mean this doesn't of course bring over the Hasbro properties, so this doesn't give them Transformers, for example. But yeah, it makes sense as uh, you kind of get less heat on those those inter- internal Hasbro brands. Why not bring it into a studio that's already established like Lionsgate? Combine those forces, get all those studio into one house. It's just consolidation. Well, you know, because Mattel was Barbie. So this is Hasbro saying, do that for us, Lionsgate, yeah. please. There's a little bit of that desperation there in there. And we could we already see like the one of the things that the impact of Barbie did lead to is what you're alluding to here, which is all the other studios being like, we can do toy movies too. You had like <laughs> more momentum behind an American girl movie mm-hmm. uh, with uh, Lena Dunham attached for some reason yep. It's 2023 folks. Um, and then <laughs> like some other, you know, rumblings about bringing transformers back and doing, I don't know what else, but yeah. Back. Did it ever leap? There was a transformers movie this year. You, no one remembers it. That was last year, wasn't it? That wasn't nope. this year. Rise of the Beast that was, was this, this year. year. Yeah, wow. Transformers, Rise of the Beast. It was this year. Unbelievable. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, let's see here. Where am I? Oh, and then we had the crossover story with sports. Because uh, remember that mm-hmm. movie, uh, The Blind Side from 2009? Oh boy, do I. Well, some people might remember it differently than others. Because the central character of that, Michael Orr, the <laughs> actual Michael Orr, yes, um, was ended up suing the Tui family because central elements of that story was a lie concocted in order to enrich 
the family itself at his expense, mainly being that he was never adopted, but instead placed under a conservatorship under right. the Tillys. And there's that word again. Yes, we talked a lot about conservatorships last year with the Britney Spears drama, a little bit this year, if you read her memoir. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, and so to see this kind of tied into a movie story like this and remind everybody, hey, maybe rethink how you feel about The Blind Side. And yeah, it probably did make a lot of people rethink how they feel about that film. It's now just completely an imaginative version of the real life story. It just it seems kind of, yeah, it seems cruel now in retrospect. Well, I don't think Sandra Bullock can pull a Reggie Bush and give her trophy back. No, I don't <laughs> think so. Um, I think I think it's fair still to say, like, yeah, she did a good performance in that film, but the performance was a performance, like itself. Yes. And so, if you can really like add layers to that, if you want, but uh, but yeah, I I think that yeah, I think it just means that that legacy of that film is now pretty tarnished, and now it's going to be even harder to go back to it. Oh, we'll talk about actors portraying other like real life people. Yes. When we get to your movies. Yes, we will. Yes, we will. Anyway. All right. Anyways, uh, as we got into the end of the year, there was one film that decided to dominate the talk. And that was the Taylor Swift, uh, The Eras Tour yes. concert film, where it clocked in $37 million in pre-sale tickets alone. Yeah, I mean, not only was it a big deal for Taylor Swift to release her uh, storied eras tour in theaters so more people could see it, but on top of this, it also kind of established a new precedent of sorts for how films are distributed. I think this is where the story really is, which is she sidestepped the studio system and did the deal directly with the theater chain, AMC. Then shortly after this, Beyonce signed up to do the exact same deal for her Renaissance film. So it got a lot of people talking about like, wait, you can just do this? And I think the fact that you can just do this now is potentially going to change how we look at distribution going forward into the next year. I think that I would not be surprised if you see this kind of deal making happen in other ways going forward. Yeah, you don't have to be a big distributor to get your film out to mm-hmm. theaters, especially yeah. now since a lot of things, or pretty much every theater is digital now. Yeah. You don't have to have this big studio behind you to send prints out right. to everyone. And the fact that this happened during the strikes, uh, the deal did at least, mm-hmm. this was Taylor also kind of showing solidarity and being like, well, no, I'm not going to do business with those guys. They screwed everybody over. Like, let's figure out a way around it. It played right into the discussion that was already happening within the strikes about actors figuring out, well, how can we make movies without relying on the studio system? And this is an example of how to do that. Mark Ruffalo, (laughs) who was one of the most prominent voices talking about, let's work with indie studios instead of these big studios because they're not screwing us over actively. I mean, that was one of the talking points from SAG-AFTRA is that Mm. if you make a deal with SAG-AFTRA, you can Mm. continue filming. And a lot of small independent studios made that deal as also a way to show that, hey, big studios, if the small guys can do it, you can do it as well. Yeah. So say what you will about Taylor's overall deal. But what I will say is that, yeah, she was at least forward thinking in the way that she distributed this film. And it does it could have impacts going forward. So yeah, the, the the woman she just keeps keeps mixing things up regardless of the industry. Hey, I wonder if she can buy her masters again. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. 
Anyways, um, let's see here. Oh, speaking of Legendary Studios. <laughs> wait, were we talking about Legendary? I think we were. No, we weren't. You weren't. But <laughs> anyway, hey, Legendary Studios, Lionsgate Studios, uh, <laughs> Studio Ghibli, you know, Mr. Miyazaki's home. Well, no longer is home, as it's been sold to Nippon TV after failing to find a successor yes. uh, to the director. I think they Which, just got, yeah, they just got tired of waiting for uh, Miyazaki to choose someone to run it. So they were just like, all right, we'll just sell it. Let's just sell it to one of the biggest TV conglomerates in Japan, Nippon, and just call it a day. I think ultimately this will probably be the right move. Um, I think with the buzz that right now behind Miyazaki's quote unquote final film final, final, final film, uh, The Boy and the Heron, is enough to keep them coasting throughout the rest of the year. But uh, yeah, going forward, it'll be decision-making will probably be broader and chosen by committee instead of just relying on one person at the top. Miyazaki's getting old. I mean, older than he even said he was getting old 10 years ago. And so, yeah. yeah older uh, than when he said he was putting out his final right. film in like 2011. If anyone's really hurt by this, it's Miyazaki's son, who keeps getting like given opportunities and keep squandering <laughs> poor guy I don't know if he's squandering or anything he's wanted at this point yeah it doesn't seem like his bag uh so yeah i don't know it's interesting to see such a storied uh studio getting kind of just handed unceremoniously to a tv studio but maybe it just makes more sense business wise you say business and studios we're not talking about business disney yet well now we are well, now we are uh because uh, well, the side of Disney as visual effects workers for both Marvel Studios and for Walt Disney Pictures voted to unanimously, both of them voted unanimously in favor of unionizing with IATSE this year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a good thing to see. Mm -hmm. Although, again, we need to specify this is, does not mean that all the many, many VFX studios that work on a contract capacity are included. This is just the in-house VFX people. But it did start a ripple effect throughout Disney, as the other Disney animators did eventually follow suit mm -hmm. uh, for visual effects, at least. So yeah, yeah, um, the and yeah, the animation studio production workers voted to right. unionize. So yeah, this was a cool thing to see, and it does start the conversation about this happening within these bigger studios uh, where this labor is in house. But again, a larger conversation needs to be had about the contract. Uh, studios because they're the ones that almost have it worse. So that indeed. Uh, as we wrap up the end of the year here, uh, we had Best Buy announcing that it would phase out sales of DVDs and Blu-rays, uh, both in store and online, starting early 2024. Yeah, and you could see that affect this holiday season as everywhere you look, it's a buy one get one free. It's forty percent off. It's it's a clearance sale going out of yeah. like get rid of stock inventory. So yeah, ultimately what's happening is that the studios want it one way and audiences want it another. The studios want the, the focus to be on digital releases so that way they can control the ebb and flow of rights. And so that you're not like changing those rights and having to renew rights agreements every handful of years that they can just do it, whatever they want with their properties, whenever they want. Audiences, meanwhile, are getting burned by digital releases, having them completely removed off of streaming services, maybe sometimes before they can even see them. And so they want those hard copies. They want to be able to know that they're going to be able to watch a film that they buy 10 years later. 
So right now, what you're having basically is an untenable situation for audiences because the digital stuff is volatile. They can't know if they're going to have it. And retailers are pulling out of the physical uh, copies, so they can't have that either. So you're creating basically a future not too different from the video game world where we're looking at right now, whereas there's not going to be an archive of old stuff that you can easily access. That is going to be slowly and slowly removed from access, like that access is going to be removed from audiences. And it's a bleak future. It's, I mean, it's why we always promote here physical media. Yeah. But if you can't um, buy physical media, what do you do? You're kind of cornered into just being at the whim of whatever this big studio system wants you to be doing. Yeah, and sometimes that price tag can be a bit outrageous. Like when Disney announced that it would be releasing the Legacy Animated Film Collection, where you could own all 100 animated films from Disney, all Disney Animation Studios, yeah. Disney Toon Studios, and Pixar for the admittedly low, low price of $1,500. Yeah. Which, you know, works out to about $15 per disc. Yeah, but at the same time, though, if you consider the relatively lower investment of just being a subscriber to Disney Plus, this is not as good of a deal as you think it is. Unless you really think that you're going to need these just in case Disney Plus dissolves in the next five years. <laughs> it could happen. Who knows? It could happen. But yeah, I mean, it is a pricey penny for yeah. physical media. Truly. I mean, if I can pay that thing over time, then yes, I might <laughs> like actually consider it. Maybe, maybe. I don't know. How much was on my credit card again? <laughs> <laughs> don't do it. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of uh, last thing we'll talk about on media going away, Ingram Entertainment, the leading DVD distributor, announced that it would wind out operations after more than 35 years in the business. Uh, but the company said it would continue to provide catalog products to consumers into the fourth quarter of 2023 yeah. wherein it would wind down in 2024 again this is even worse than the retailers because this means it's cutting off at the source in a lot of ways and yeah it's just just sad it's just sad to see uh something that wasn't sad to see though the video game adaptation of super mario brothers movie not the only video game adaptation that made money this year at the box office yeah. as Five Nights at Freddy's made an absolute and figuratively killing <laughs> at the box office with $132 million in its opening ooh, debut mm -hmm. on a $20 million budget. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Not made super surprising considering a couple of factors. One, that it's a horror movie which traditionally does really well at this time of year and two um is a franchise that is hugely popular with the younger audience this really brought in a younger crowd uh in a similar way that mario did did where like you're gonna get like yeah you might alienate the older audience who is like what's a freddy uh but you're gonna get a devoted cult fan base to go see your movie and that's exactly what happened here so not super surprising if you know the context but if you don't know anything about five nights at freddy's you'd probably be kind of shocked that this is one based on a video game and two was as successful as it was uh yeah i mean it had the second largest debut for a video game adaptation yeah behind the super mario brothers movie but right. also the third biggest debut for any horror film ever behind 
it and it chapter two both right. stephen king uh adaptations so needless to say there will be more of these uh so get ready for more kids to ask you about fnaf don't worry they always come back they, they always ask about fnaf they love yes, FNAF. They do. Uh, speaking of things making a comeback, the <laughs> Warner Brothers live action CG hybrid film of. Did I not have it written down here? You I'm don't just taking have it, it out. Yes, uh, I believe it's called uh, uh, Coyote versus Acme. Coyote versus Acme, yes. Yes. Uh, which had uh, completed principal photography last year, got the same treatment as Scoob and Batgirl, where Warner Brothers wasn't even going to release it. I believe until the internet decided no, yes. we, we had enough of this. I believe our story of the year last year for films was the Zaslav cuts, right? Like, yes. And so that this was is our a story neat, of the year. Neat little circle, full circle moment. It never stopped, folks. It just kept going. And but at, the, at least this time, like you said, the internet's power pushed back enough for them to at least have conversations for partnering up with the separate distributor to release this film. Though important to note, as of this recording. They still haven't found a home for it. Apparently, Netflix's uh, offer of $70 million was declined because Warner wanted at least 80 for it. So whether or not they're actually going to find a suitor that's willing to pay that much, who knows? But uh, yeah, it's 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 good to see that the movement moved the needle a little bit. But ultimately, until we see that movie, it's hard to believe that it's going to release Studio Hell. Yep. And then our last story of the year, it's been looking forward as... There will be a new Karate Kid. But Again. who that Karate Kid will be is currently unknown. Yeah. But we do know who will be starring it. Both Jackie Chan and Ralph Macchio. Yes, from two separate Karate Kid films. Mm -hmm. They will both star in an upcoming third film, probably called The Karate Kid. Probably. Actually, they're going to drop the the and just call it Karate Kid. Karate Kid, yeah. Not to be confused with The Karate Kid 2010 and the karate kid <laughs> right yeah i don't know uh i don't know why we need another karate kid but sure why not hey that cobra kai does good it, it did okay for them or so i've heard so i've heard all right uh but hey that brings us to the end here and we need to talk about a story so i have a couple of pitches um I thought I went into this thinking that I knew 100%, but I thought it was interesting how we really didn't cover it as like a story story. It was just kind of always hovering in the background, which was Disney. We mentioned them a couple times here, but I think the most interesting thing about Disney's 2023 is that at the beginning of it, they promised a big year of celebration. This was the 100th anniversary of the animation studio. This was supposed to be a huge deal for Disney. They had pumped up the hype for the animated film Wish. That was supposed to be their kind of like anniversary movie. Mm -hmm. They talked throughout like about how they were going to celebrate in the parks and they're going to have, you know, specials on Disney Plus to talk about, commemorate the studio's history and, and all this stuff. And this all happened in a year, in the same year where absolutely nothing clicked for them. They had yet another CEO swap with Bob Iger coming back to helm the studio again. They had headline after headline of negative press, specifically dealing with their big tentpole releases, largely failing to make an impact whatsoever. The big Marvel movies failed to be successes. 
the big Disney, like Disney animated and live action films failed to click with audiences. Wish, especially, was a huge bomb in its Thanksgiving time period when it finally came out. Nobody talked about it. Nobody saw it. Nobody cared. And so what you get is this picture of complete reversal for a studio that was once the biggest and most successful film studio of all time for several years in a row. We talked about it on this very podcast. We had several record years in a row of Disney with countless billion dollar movies. You know what made a billion dollars this year? Two movies that were not Disney films. It was a Warner Brothers film and it was a Universal film. For whatever reason, the Disney stuff in their 100th celebration year just completely failed to make any kind of impact. And so you have a Disney right now that is reeling. Their streaming platform is not making them the money that they wanted. Their movies are not resonating. Their parks are in a weird like limbo between the pandemic years and hopefully some sort of rebuild process to recover from the uh the, the years of a the previous CEO, uh, all screwing them up. It's a studio that is now looks completely different than they did at the beginning of the year. What happened to Disney? I mean, you're right, because, I mean, looking back at, like, our previous podcast in 2018, mm-hmm. banner year for Disney. 2019, right. banner year for Disney. Even when we started, like, 2017, 2016, yeah. Disney was always in the top of the box office. And here we are, uh, three years pandemic removed, and... Yeah. They are flopping around. They don't know what they're doing. I mean, yeah. Granted, they do still have what one, two, three, four, five movies in the top ten global box office. But when I tell you what they were, you're still gonna be like, wait, that did come out this year. Mm Yeah. Including Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three. Yeah. The Little Mermaid. Yeah. Elemental. Mm Mm-hmm. And Ant-Man and the Lost Quantumania. And you know what? The recurring theme of all those movies is not only did they not make a box office splash, but they were all pretty mixed reviews critically as well. Like, there was nobody really championing the Little Mermaid remake. No one was out there beating the drum for Elemental. These were all very kind of like dead-on-arrival releases. Which is even on this list. Speaking of dead-on-arrival... We also had Indiana Jones and the Dial of That's Destiny this year. Right. And nobody cared. Like, they released a sequel to Indiana Jones. And nobody's talking about it. Notably, they didn't have a Star Wars film this year. They were supposed like, to. They were supposed <laughs> to. But they can't figure out who to direct these films, how to get them off the ground to even get released in a the theater anymore. They just If they're going to theater. Because Disney yeah. Plus and Dave Filoni's stuff... Right. It's the only like bright spot currently. And even that, I don't think, did the numbers that they were hoping for in a year where TV discussion was dominated by, again, other studios output. The Last of Us on HBO, another Warner production. You had like the conversation was about succession. The conversation was about other studio stuff. It wasn't about the Disney Plus stuff this year that came out. But beyond like Loki season two, I didn't hear a whole lot of discourse about it. Definitely not mm-hmm. the uproarious discourse for Andor from last year. It was just diminishing returns for Disney Plus's output. And in a year where they needed something to look at. So I think it's a strong contender. Um, the other story, I think, is what I was alluding to earlier, which is the Barbie Oppenheimer, the Barbenheimer, if you will, 
um, mm -hmm. resurgence of theaters. Theaters came back. Theaters came back in a big way. It was because of Barbie and Oppenheimer, obviously, but also Super Mario Brothers, also Taylor Swift. Like there was a recurring like uh, theme this year of, hey, people are going to see movies again and in larger numbers than we expected. So I don't know which is a more compelling story, the fall of the Disney empire or people are seeing movies again. I mean, I like the angle of the fall of the Disney Empire, especially yeah. since we do build them up kind of here on the Media Belt podcast. But I it just, yeah, historic context. To, yeah, we'll yeah just, but I kind of want to give yeah. it to Barbenheimer because that was not a studio run thing. That was a fan run campaign right. that also, was, hey, yeah. these two movies are coming out the exact same time and it drove people to theaters. And if there's one thing yeah. that we talk about in movies here, it for the past three years, it was the decline of movie theaters and can they yeah. survive? And here we have two big studio temple films mm -hmm. coming out at the same time, facing completely different audiences, mm -hmm. but generating enough buzz that people got out of the house and into theaters. And I think it's notable to say that all of that is true. Plus the fact that a lot of these films are not traditionally successful films. I mean, you had a Greta Gerwig directed film, that's largely a pastiche of musical theater tropes and gender studies <laughs> be the billion dollar movie that swept the box office. So beyond Oppenheimer, which was, you know, more uh, more traditional big box office tentpole film, you have a movie that really didn't seem like it was going to add up to be the success that it was. Buoyed, like you said, largely by fans, by word of mouth, by a meme largely uh, that kind of brought people to see it. And so, yeah, I think that some of the most exciting stuff about this story is not just that people return to films, but why they to see these movies that to me are not guaranteed hits. The Super Mario Brothers movie, sure, it's based on Mario, but it must have been doing something specific to get that many people interested in it. Right, to hit a billion dollars, not just people wanted to see Mario on the big screen. Yeah. There's something that made people want to I mean, besides it being a family film and pump yeah. tickets that way, come right. back and watch it over and over again. Yeah, it, it created, uh, again, one of those cultural moments that we don't really have a lot. And the fact that that can even happen again is mm -hmm. kind of a small miracle, especially after the pandemic years. So, yes, we are the same pod podcast that just a few years ago in 2020 was talking about like, oh, like Universal and Trolls World Tour changed the way that the, the distribution model works and it's all going to be streaming, same day streaming. Well, yes, maybe we were a little wrong about that. <laughs> I don't know. I still like the same day streaming. Yeah, it still happens every once in a while. Just look at Disney who made that choice badly with turning red. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's like, that's still going to happen. Uh, but yeah, I think that uh, it definitely changed. That wasn't this year, was it? Turning red was last year. year. Right, that was last year. But like, but it's going to get a theatrical release in february next year but yeah i mean it's just it's it yeah i don't know where i land on it because i think the the context makes the disney story interesting because the context of how much success they have been raking in on these tried and true franchise releases every time they did it and to just see how different it was this year and how like completely fell on its head but then yeah i think it's almost like a more exciting and hopeful story that we can still have moments like barbie 
Burke and I still have moments like that to bring people in and celebrate movies in the same way. Eras tour too. We didn't really talk about that in the story, but that matters. Not just because of the distribution stuff we talked about, but also people getting excited to have a moment in a movie theater. Like half of the like the vibe about the Eras tour stuff was not just that you were seeing Taylor Swift, that you were seeing Taylor Swift with other Swifties and dressing up and singing along having a moment in the theater that wasn't just I'm sitting and watching a film. That's exciting for where film movie theaters could go. That's what people were talking about in 2020 when people were grumbling about not being able to go to the movies. It's that little light through the cracks that I think people are seeing the potential for. Now we're finally seeing it happen and it could change how certain movies are seen. Well, because last time something like that happened, which was a grouped and share experience, was Avengers Infinity War and yeah. Avengers Endgame, where you wanted to be part of that midnight crowd, those first right. showings, to get that kind of collective um, exposure. But then Taylor Swift does it, and it's every showing is that collective <laughs> exposure because everyone is excited to see it. You're not just seeing it because it's another checklist item. It's You're seeing it yeah. because it's an event film. Mm-hmm. That you're seeing with other people who see it as an event film. Yeah. So, uh, okay, let's let's decide then. Uh, which of the two do you think is more representative, 2023? Uh, Barbenheimer Taylor's version. It's <laughs> good. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Yeah, I, I think I'm with you. I think that I I typically like to go for the hopeful story uh, when we do mm-hmm. have a hopeful story, and I think this is one. Uh, yeah, the industry bounced back somehow, and I don't really understand how it happened, but it just sort of happened from the strength of original movies with ideas. Yes, I realize that Barbie is based on a toy that's been around forever, but the movie itself that people went actually got to like went out to see is a real interesting piece of original storytelling, and we'll get to there. We'll get to that in a moment, but yeah, just like that gives me hope that these moments are going to be more and more exciting and studios are realizing what people want to see in a theater instead of just assuming what they want to see in a theater. Yeah, I mean, and the box office more more generally reflects that as Barbie was the number one both domestically and internationally. Yeah, goes to show you. So yeah, I think that that's a good pick. I think we'll go with the the, the Barbenheimer slash return of return to theaters Taylor's version. Yes. (laughs) All right. right. So now that we have our story out of the way, we get to do the best part of this thing and (laughs) talk about the films we actually watched. Let's talk about some good movies. Now, uh, who's starting on this one? Uh, You start on this one. All right. Well, let's start then. So these are our top five favorite movies of the year, in case you didn't realize that that's what we were doing here. Uh, My keyboard did not copy that. Let me try this again. All right, there we go. Right. I'll the, start the at my criteria being that we had to have watched this movie. Yes. Well, obviously, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, you, I mean, you don't see stuff like Maestro, Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, stuff that's coming out more recently um, that might appear yeah. on awards shows. Right. Probably not, not going to end up on our list. Right. Here. Yeah. So this is just what we've seen. Yes. Anyway, starting with my number five movie down here, which is Asteroid City. Um, I'm actually surprised myself that this is on here. I'm not the biggest Wes Anderson guy. Like, I find a lot of his uh, movies, you know, kind of in the middle there of his over kind of, I don't know, it's not for me. 
But I've been getting a little bit of a Wes Anderson education uh, from my significant other. And I've been seeing a lot of his earlier films to kind of get context for his other films. And I think that's helped me appreciate kind of his the dude's vibe. And I like understand where he's coming from now. Cue this year's release of Asteroid City. Um, and yeah, I think this is one of the most successful attempts that he has of balancing out his like, you know, tendencies, you know, like him or not with actual really interesting emotional storytelling. Asteroid City is like a really poignant story about like two people's relationship that doesn't even really go into the predictable romantic angle that you think it's going to, but it's just more about like their shared like loneliness and how they can help each other and like what they're learning about each other, all framed against the backdrop of this story within a story because Wes Anderson. Um, and like it does it in such an interesting fun funny way but doesn't pull the punches when it wants to tell this emotional like emotional story i th think it's cool it's a cool balance a balancing act it's a cool look to it it's a cool vibe to it and yeah i really liked it um it's did something to for me that a lot of his films just haven't and that's a really cool thing to see that he can still do it in 2023 like the man's got a vibe and he sometimes it really works and then other times, there's the Wes Anderson Netflix adaptations of the Roald Dahl yeah. stuff. I did not watch those, so... You watched one of those. No, I didn't. What? You you, did. I thought you watched the um, the Henry Sugar one. No, we didn't. I didn't. We didn't even bother. Ah. So, so this is where your Wes Anderson-cation ends then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that he did a good job with... An original, I think, yeah, the interesting thing is that it's not an adaptation of something. This is just an original story. And yeah, uh, I think that when he, yes, it's dangerous sometimes to give him completely the full reins of something because he does kind of maybe careen off the cliff at some points. But I think this one is measured. I think this one is a version of his shtick that doesn't outwear its welcome. Like, I think that it it does what it needs to do. And I really thought it was charming. I don't know. I still think like he's, He's, some of his best work is like the Grand Budapest Hotel, uh, Moonrise Kingdom. Like, I think that's where he's strong. I mean, when, it's still no, not his best movie. That's Rushmore. I and mean, we can yes, all agree on this. We all agree on that. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's move on to my number four. Uh, which, yeah, I know we don't want to take forever on this. But man, I could talk about May, December a very long time on here. But thankfully, we already talked about it recently enough on the podcast uh, that if you want to look at our thoughts about that, you can go back to that episode just a few weeks ago. But yeah, uh, May, December is a whew, it's a lot. Uh, it is a heavy movie that doesn't feel as heavy as you'd think it would. And I think that's because of just the wild directing choices that are made here. And it just creates a thing that I have not stopped thinking about since I saw it. Uh, now, we both saw this. Oh, Christy's in the background smiling because she loved this movie as well. Uh, but yeah, it's a vibe. Uh, it definitely tackles some heavy materials based on a true story. And whether or not that how you feel about like a movie that discusses that kind of thing will kind of paint your expectations for the film. That being said, it does it in such a unique, interesting way that like, again, it doesn't feel as heavy as it could be. It doesn't kind of bunk on the ground like you think that's something that deals with this kind of thing would feel it's 
it's shot in an interesting way. It's scored, especially in an interesting way that kind of like doesn't necessarily distract you, but reminds you almost of the stakes and what's happening on screen. And the performances, though, the performances are the number one reason to watch this thing. Riverdale star Charles Melton is one number one with a bullet on my watch this guy for for Oscar like buzz. And it's for a reason. His performance as kind of this child in an adult's body who is like, you know, had arrested development style stunted growth because of the trauma that happened to him um, is incredible in this film. He at every step of the way feels like he has seen some shit and gone through the ringer with this woman. And he shows it in every bit of body language and every like tick of his face, especially when he breaks down in those pure emotional moments, he just retreats and becomes a child and you see him do it. And it's some of the most incredible acting I've seen in a very long time. That alone I think should sell people on this film just to like, at least give them like an idea of what they're expecting, what to, they're getting into. The other performances aren't in nothing to sneeze at either. I mean, Julianne Moore does an incredible, uh, incredible job of just being like the completely like, ah, whatever, you know, like a uh, uh, version of this story when everybody around her is being like, uh, no, this is messed up. Don't you understand how this is messed up? It's messed up everybody around you, but she's so just like, tossed off she's so in a different planet than everybody else is because she refuses to believe what she has actually done what she's caused the damage that she has caused to her family and especially to charles melson's character it's just such a weird weird eerie performance and then of course on top of that the weirdest of them all queen weird herself natalie portman who is the strangest person in this film and somehow by the end of it you think somehow that she's the most monstrous of all of them it's an amazing piece of filmmaking to get you to that point by the end of it. And it does it slowly. It creeps up on you. And then there are moments in this film where you're not sure if you should laugh or cry or how you're supposed to react because the movie is just so just kind of lays all the cards out on the table and says like, here's what happened. Here's how these people reacted. Here's how this like actually would have probably affected them. And also here's this late filmic layer on top of it that, makes everything exaggerated to the point where it's just like whoa okay movie i get it but it definitely leaves an impact on you i mean it is a comedy right it's up for best comedy musical it is definitely not a comedy. Singing. <laughs> i mean it depends on your definition of comedy if like a lot of the laughs come because you're just not sure how to react especially i note the greatest Thing that happened in this film which is that stupid hot dog new musical sting which is so good uh it just definitely sets the table for like oh what this what is this movie what is this movie trying to do and yeah i think it's a real conversation starter i mean especially with the name because it being an old passage to a very like old term people yeah. just come into it like not knowing why is it even called may december Right. It, a lot of people Googled that term this year. <laughs> yes. You just see a spike in December for what is May, December? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I think um, it's doing some interesting things. And I think people should give it a try just to see what it does. It's definitely a weird piece of filmmaking.
I mean, yeah, we talked about it uh, a couple of weeks ago when we both watched it and yeah. didn't grab me as much. I can see where you're no. coming from it, especially with the acting. The I think Natalie Portman is better in this than Charles Melton. But then again, Ooh, no, no, he no, no, should no, no, no. be. No, no, no. They're both great. But Charles Melton, yes. Jesus Christ. Like that man. Anyway. Well, but there were movies that I enjoyed even more than that, believe it or not, this year. Especially in a theater. Yes, because I've already talked this to death this podcast. But yes, Taylor Swift, The Aero Stewart is my number three movie. I don't need to reiterate the points that much. I'll just say it was a blast to see with other people also singing along, also enjoying it for the same reasons I was. It felt like a cool moment that you don't get with a lot of people, especially in a post-pandemic world. We're still kind of, you know, baby steps into having those big moments with other people. And I think this is definitely one of those steps uh, that are part of that process of getting back to that normalcy. Um, but also, it's two and a half hours plus of back-to-back Taylor Swift songs with her performing her heart out and some of the best performances of that tour. So if you didn't get to see it in real life, it's the next best thing. And the fact that now you can see it at home if you want to rent it for 48 hours, as you alluded to. Um, free pod. Or soon, maybe. She'll let us own it. I don't know. Maybe. Um, but yeah, know, Nobody fact, owns Taylor Swift. Yeah, and then on the fact Taylor Swift owns 2023. That, right. Then on top of that, of course, you have the other stuff, the more meta-textual stuff we talked about, which is how it's changing distribution methods and how it like brought people back into theaters. So all of that kind of really like combined for me to like think about just the impact of this film. It's just so much fun. Just to, that concert films of one of the best kinds of movies are back and in a big way and in full force. And Taylor brought them back. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is if you weren't able to spend money on a Taylor Swift concert ticket or wasn't in your area, getting able to spend $19.89 on a ticket mm-hmm. to see it in your hometown, well worth it. Um, yeah. Like you said, seeing with other people probably helped enhance that experience. Uh, but also, this was not just a U.S. release. This was a global mm-hmm. release as people outside the U.S. were also able to watch and experience uh, the Eras Tour. Yeah, it's a concert cool moment. Film. It's a cool moment. Definitely already on my list of my favorite uh, concert films of all time. Not the most arty or the most like, you know, we're trying to, you know, deliver a message here. It is literally just watch Taylor Swift do her songs. And you know what? That's enough for me. It's probably enough for a lot of people. <laughs> uh, it's enough for what? A hundred and eighty thousand. Yeah. hundred eighty million dollars worth of mm-hmm. uh, ticket sales. Right. Easily, easily. So, yeah, that's my number three. But two more movies on my list. Next up, of course, number two, almost was number one. Didn't quite make it. Barbie. I did not know what I was getting into uh, when I saw this film. I kind of had some vague ideas. I knew that, like, you know, the internet internet memes told me to a certain extent what, what this movie was. Loosely based on the doll, of course, and incorporated a lot of things from about about the doll into the into the film. Like, well, what does it mean? Like, is it is Barbie? You know, how do you read Barbie in a feminist lens? How do you read? But then again, that's kind of old hat. Like, we've all been there. If you've lived in society since the release, like since the success of the Barbie doll, you've had that conversation. You've been part of that conversation. You've heard that conversation. What does Barbie mean? What? 
Does it mean that we market this to little girls? Is this an aspirational fantasy or is it a body image reminder? Like, does the Barbie brand do like, you know, a positive net positive good for society, especially women? Or is it giving unrealistic standards to women? Like, where is Barbie in the cultural landscape, especially in 2023? So, you know, there's a lot of baggage with the concept of Barbie that you're taking into this film. But the thing that makes Barbie the film work is that Greta Gerwig knows all of this. Greta Gerwig wants you to come in with this. She is expecting an audience to approach this movie knowing what a Barbie is and why it matters to them. And the film then takes that concept and just runs with it in some of the craziest, most bonkers ways it could have possibly done. It's so much. This movie is doing so many things. It's trying everything. And it succeeds at largely a lot, like most of it, in my opinion. It's a fun movie. It's a colorful movie. It's a movie that surprises you. It's a roller coaster ride. There's action sequences. There's musical theater, song and dance. There are like race, like there's like a race through the city. There's like a, cha like a chase scene in an office building. There's so much happening here. But the whole time it reminds you of what it's talking about and the message it's trying to deliver. That ultimately Barbie is what you make Barbie. Barbie ma matters to people because of its connection to you, the person playing with the Barbie. It even works that into the plot. It's a plot point that the Barbies themselves are affected by the people who play with the Barbies. And if you start thinking about Barbie in a different con context, that changes how Barbie is interpreted. And so what it creates is this film that is having a conversation with the concept of Barbie, but also having conversations with history of cinema and also having conversations with feminism in general. I mean, it's just such a weird film and it's amazing. It does all of this stuff. And at the end of it, you're like, hell yeah, that was great. So it manages to dig into this deeper commentary while at the same time, being a genuinely fun, exciting, and funny and memorable film. I don't know how she pulled it off. I don't know how she did it. And yet billions of people, like, and it made a billion dollars. Like, I, it's just, everything about this seems like it was something that could not and should not have happened. And yet it did. Uh, Greta Gerwig actually goes a lot into that, into the commentary of it, mm -hmm. which you can watch on Max, which of course I did. Oh, I should do that. Because it is that good. And you should do that. I should because do that. Because a lot of the, like, every, like, Every other scene, she's like, "Yeah, I like I had this idea, and somehow they made it work. I don't know how it shouldn't <laughs> exist, but I really wanted to like throw this in the film, and like thank God I had like the right like DP and production <laughs> coordinators and uh, like art director, and, like they were able to make this thing happen. It yeah. shouldn't happen. It shouldn't exist. I just really wanted to do it and thought it'd be a nice thing for Barbie to do, and yeah. somehow it all works. It all flows yeah. through it. It's almost like you know." I do have to say it's unfortunate in a way that it is tied to such a merchandisable franchise because the easy mm -hmm. way you can dismiss the film is say, well, of course people saw it. And of course it was a success because it's Barbie. Everybody knows what a Barbie is. Brand recognition now feels like it's almost poisoned the punch for a lot of films. It's so easy to just be like, oh, well, people saw it because it was a known quantity. Studios only made it because it was a known quantity. And yes, I think that is true to a certain extent. Warner wouldn't have touched this with a 10-foot pole if it wasn't associated with something they knew people knew about. Like, if this was just another Greta Gerwig film, 
like if she was just making Francis Ha too, you know, like not that many people would care. It would bring in a certain audience, but wouldn't bring in a billion dollars. I can guarantee that. But what Greta did here is she Trojan horsed an art film into a studio, like a big studio blockbuster by taking advantage of the Barbie franchise, by taking advantage of it being Barbie. It's almost like the golden, like it's the last thing I think we have to hang on to in the mainstream industry is you're able to make these movies, these very personal, these very like weird experimental films, as long as you tie them to a known quantity. Yeah, that sucks. And I'm admitting that sucks. It sucks that you have to do that. It sucks that the moment we had with Everything Everywhere All at Once, a truly original film, a truly creative thing that nobody else could have made besides the people who made it, and, and a paradigm-shifting thing, is very rare. And is not in that, if we learn anything from 2023, cannot easily be replicated. So it's kind of it's kind of a mixed feeling, I think, when you start thinking about like, well, the only reason why this exists is because it's about Barbie. But the fact that Greta took a film and made this the thing that she made it, even with the Barbie, like kind of Barbie being like the chain, the ball and chain on it, holding it back, like it's still amazing because it withstood that pressure. It It's a good enough movie that it takes that and has a commentary on the very fact that they made it. And makes that work and not feel like beholden too much to the Barbie brand. It's just unfortunate that it will set a weird precedent now where studios are just going to think, well, this succeeded because it was based on a toy. And they're going to make these toy-based movies not realizing what made Barbie special, what made people want to see Barbie. And it's going to be a missed opportunity. The wrong lessons are going to be learned from this movie. And it is kind of hard to see just because of how easy it is to dismiss, oh, it's based on a toy. Right. That's the whole fear of Barbie having all the success is that studios are just going to see, wait, so I can just make any IP, uh, throw in a tour behind it, and it will make me a billion dollars? It won't. I'm going to tell you right now, that American Girl thing is not going to be as big as Barbie. Mm -hmm. American Girl, interesting concept, depending on what you do with it. And it's going to be really reliant on what you do with it. Hey, there was, there is a world somewhere that Amy Schubert is the star of this thing and mm. not met Margot Robbie. Not anymore. Let me tell you, that wouldn't happen <laughs> anymore. Um, and yeah, th- this could have gone wrong in so many ways. Yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, but the thing they made, we get to hold this as a special thing that nobody is going to be able to replicate. Even if they do another one of these, I don't think it's going to do the same thing. So with that in mind, I have a feeling that... Uh, Amy Schumer was never going to be Barbie, but instead it could be the America Ferrera character. Okay. Like, I mean, after I've seen it, I, I think, think that would be right more choice. Yeah. But yeah. But yeah, that, uh, I mean, that America Ferrera uh, monologue mm-hmm. at the start of the act three was plastered everywhere on social media. Yeah. And I think helped drive people to see this thing. And, you know, say what you will about it. I think that there are some people who rightfully point out like, and it kind of goes on a little long and it does kind of disrupt uh, the pace of the film a little bit. I liked what it did. And yes, for anybody who's taken like a gender studies or a feminist course, it's pretty 101. But like those who haven't, again, 
that Trojan horse comes to mind. And it's going to get these ideas maybe in some minds that people that maybe hadn't considered them before. The literal kins in the world who hadn't considered what the actual th had thought about what it means to be a woman and the additional pressures and how we're still not any closer to a truly like a vision of equality as you know barbie world wants to like to, to give you and so yeah it's like hopefully the fact that it was as successful as it is means that this kind of movie and these kind of thoughts and this kind of vision was seen by people who didn't expect it i think you kind of lost people talking about both ken and children horse in the same sentence <laughs> <laughs> maybe so but anyway uh, but not yeah. your number one film. Barbie. But no, not number one. Uh, the, my number one is reserved for something that just really caught me off guard. Uh, like something that ended especially in a way that I was just like so emotionally devastated by it. I was like, well, this is number one. I guess it has to be uh, kind of in a similar way that um, uh, Marcel the Shell did last year, which was my number one. Um, just these smaller movies just have a way of wriggling their way into my heart. And in this case, this year's version of that was Nimona on Netflix, an animated film based on uh, a comic by Indy Stevenson, who some might recognize as the creator and showrunner, I believe, of the uh, She-Ra uh, series on Netflix, mm -hmm. the reboot. Um, and also, you know, well-known in the comic industry. Uh, but yeah, uh, this thing caught me completely by surprise. Um, I didn't know what it was going into it. Uh, Christy had seen uh the comic and knew and read the comic and knew what this was and the the basic plot and was familiar with the creator's work. I went into it completely blank. I was like, I don't know what this is. I don't know anything about this. Like, I watched it one episode of She-Ra. wasn't for me. What is this? And we watched it, and I was just like, moment as it kind of continued and the momentum started. You start seeing this great animation. You get to learn these characters and these crazy transformations that the main character goes through. And then you start realizing, oh, wait, there's something deeper happening here. There's a really strong undercurrent of empathy for the underdog, the downtrodden, the, the people who are kept from being their true selves by a society who refuses to see it. I mean, yes, I'll be upfront about this. It's not even like subtext. It's pretty much context, which is this is a metaphor for the trans experience. The creator is trans um, and it does evoke the feeling of living in a world that refuse where a lot of people, a lot of very vocal people refuse to accept trans people as people and continue to, you know, enact this draconian legislation to prevent them from living their lives in a normal capacity. And throughout Nimona, you are reminded of this because Nimona, as a character, is very chipper, very energetic. But there's a pain underneath all that that they're trying to escape from. They're trying to bury. And the film does a really tricky balancing act of reminding you that all up to the climax, where you finally feel that pain, you feel all that pain, you see all that pain on the screen, where they are willing to basically give their life to this pain, to this just, and it's, oh my God, I don't remember the last time I just erupted in like tears, like the last that strong. It was so strong of an image and, a, and an emotional feeling. And then the movie does 
the best thing you could possibly do with that moment and makes the rest of that climax feel so cathartic where it just feels so good. All that pain being relieved and you just feel like, oh, that's what we're doing here. There is hope. There is hope for this person. There is hope for these people who feel the same way as this person. And then on top of that, it's a fun movie. It's a colorful movie. The animation is spectacular for especially what it was. And above all that, the context of this film wasn't barely even made. It was barely even finished and released. You know, Disney was holding on to this uh, concept because they had inherited Blue Sky Studio from Fox. But they never wanted to release this thing. You know they didn't. The baggage of it being created by who it was and... Like I said, the context of the story, because like I said, it's not even subtext, really. Like what this film is doing, the story that filming the film is telling, Disney was terrified of, let's be honest. They probably didn't want to put this out in a theater, especially. They didn't want to touch it. So they left it, they let it languish and they let it just sit on the shelf forever because they did not have the bravery. They did not have the confidence of knowing that this thing was going to resonate with a lot of people. But thankfully, it got resurrected. Annapurna put it out, made a deal with Netflix to let people see it. And man, am I indebted to whoever made that decision because <laughs> this is going to mean a lot to a lot of people. This is going to be a special, special story that needed to be seen in the way that it was made, that needed to be made. And yeah, I think that the fact that we get it is a little small miracle of 2023. And I want to honor that. I want to honor the little miracle and the way that it made me feel. And the way that it resonated with me, and I'm sure it will resonate with a lot of people who feel similarly, even if they're not trans and haven't lived that experience, like I'm not, and it still mean, meant a lot to me because I know people who are. And it doesn't, you don't even have to be trans to feel like that, to feel like you live your life in a way that society just refuses to accept, that you live like whatever choice of being you is prevented, not even like just scoff, like, like scoffed at or laughed at, that it's actively being stopped. Like people are out there wanting you to not exist. Like in this household, we have a lot of conversations about book banning. Uh, you know, Chrissy's a librarian. She sees every day and has to deal with these people that are just trying to remove any mention, like books that even mention, for books for children specifically, they even mention a gay person or a trans person or anybody that's outside of their, you know, purview of a conservative straight person. Like, they don't want these books to exist in the same way they don't want these people to exist. And it's just brutal. And it just tears your, like, you know, your oneness, your sense of community away from you. You want to believe that these people who are just living their lives and being themselves can exist. And the fact that there are people that are every day making it their stupid crusade to say, no, because I don't think they should exist, they shouldn't. They should just be ignored and they should just be placed in this place where I don't have to see them. It's very real. It's more real than people think it is. And it's happening every single day. And so stories like this are more important than ever. Stories like this that say, no, you should be able to be who you are, who you truly are. Because compromising in any way about that is not living. And I think Nimona does a really good job of reminding people of that. I'm sorry, what movie were we talking about? <laughs> hey, I brought it back in the end. I I, I, I circled back to it. <laughs> circle back to your point. But anyway, yeah, it just, it really made an impact on me. 
Uh, clearly, it did. Um, <laughs> do I need yeah. to say more about this? I mean, I don't need to say more I mean, about this. I might. But I believe you might. Uh, I believe I list. might. <laughs> but yeah, let's get to my list. And let's yes. segue then to number... Eh, now let's go in order. Let's go to number five. Um, as we start with a movie that came out of nowhere, first-time director, uh, did a lot of little stuff, um, typically a screenwriter, but first, like, actual, like, feature debut uh, by Joel Taylor in Netflix's They Cloned Tyrone. So tell me, did they clone Tyrone? Well, I would tell you, but that'd be spoiling stuff. Oh, spoilers. But yes, technically, yes, they did indeed clone Tyrone. But how and why <laughs> and what is mm-hmm. this whole like weird mystery box comedy mm-hmm. sci-fi social commentary mm-hmm. like film that just exudes more information the more you watch it? It's this absolute like bonkers of an idea, which is why I liked everything everywhere all at once. It's just right. you take something with something simple, you take commonality, and then you immediately go off into the deep end but (laughs) unlike say what boots riley does which is stay in that deep end Mm -hmm. um jewel taylor in the clone tyrone actually brings it back to social commentary actually brings it back to this whole like meta social commentary not just about like black black citation films and Mm -hmm. the culture surrounding it but just in culture in general and how weird sci-fi can be and also how good sci-fi films can be that they don't that when you make your own rules and as long as you play by your own rules mm. and stick to those set rules you're going to come out with a good film at the end i mean john boyega jamie fox just absolutely shine in the banter back and forth off one another and it's this really weird and twisted world and by the time you get to the end of it you're just like what the hell did i watch but also, <laughs> I need to watch this again because I missed so much in the first viewing. Right. When you kill off your main character 15 minutes into the film, and then <laughs> you're like, what the hell's going on? Yeah. And they bring it back. And you're like, wait, didn't I just watch this? <laughs> you get this kind of like Groundhog Day movie. Like, wait, is this what this is? No, it's something else. No, it's something else. No, it's this fourth thing. It's this layer upon layer upon layer of metatextual filmmaking that makes this that makes they clone Tyrone just an entire joy and pleasantry and total like mind melding fuckery to that just <laughs> I enjoy. Yeah, when think when films do this. Yeah. So how does it compare to something? Because the easiest comparison is something like you know the work of Jordan Peele. Like, does it kind of get close to that? Uh, I uh, it gets close to that, and then it keeps going mm-hmm. in that it keeps its social commentary, but then keeps going into that sci-fi realm mm-hmm. of we're going to keep how bonkers <laughs> is. That's why I brought up Boots Riley instead <laughs> right, of Jordan right. Field. That's a good comparison too, because uh, Boots Riley is uh, and what, what was that? Um, how how does? Oh yeah, what I'll, was I'll the see you that? now. Uh, so, sorry to bother you. Sorry to bother you. Yeah. Yes. It starts off as that kind of like weird kind of social commentary. Yeah. But then where, sorry to bother you, 
keeps going and goes even further off the deep end, at mm-hmm. least they clone Tyrone is able to rein it back and play within its own reels of the established um, world building within the first 15, 20 minutes and doesn't do what Boots Riley does, which is I'm just going <laughs> to keep going. You're just going to follow me on this. Right. No, at least this one, you're able to reel it all back in. By the time you get to the end and the final twist, you're like, oh my God, <laughs> this whole thing. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And it just keeps you want to talk about it. Keeps you want to watch it again. Keeps you want to come back to it. And reminds me of our, our reaction to Palm Springs. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But except hey, cool. Paul Strings our number one film. Right, it was. Year. But no, you got four more somehow on this list. All right. Yes. At my number four is your number one yes. is Nimona. And yes. you already talked so much about it, but <laughs> I but for everything that you mentioned, all those layers to unpack yeah. in this film, I mean, yeah, I don't even know where to start. Yeah, it's hard. And it's hard. You go first. Yeah, it's such a hard movie to explain to somebody who doesn't know anything about it. It's like, well, yeah, it's like a fantasy thing, but it's also like a future fantasy. It's like medieval fantasy, futuristic, and they're all hunting the uh the demon child, but that's not really a child. And really what's going on, yeah. That really what's going on. And there's something you kind of have to just steep yourself in, like a little tea bag in a cup, you know? Like you just have to kind of just let it wash over you. Yeah, but that's the the whimsy never stops. It just keeps going. And he's laughing at my metaphor. Yes, your your tea (laughs) metaphor, your steeping metaphor. You know, just steep it in. You go boop. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It's a film that you have to watch to appreciate because it's something that just doesn't get made anymore. And the fact that it did get made, literally against all odds, being pushed against it, totally is just a triumph in that of itself. And it's good, and yeah. it's funny, and it's hilarious, and it's yes. very metal. I think it's yes, it is it's very. But <laughs> I think the one, one of the things I didn't say, but I'll bring up now, is the fact that this came out, and in a year where Disney totally failed to connect with audiences, and it was a thing that Disney could have put them put out themselves, is extremely telling of the disconnect, right? Between mm-hmm. the stories that Disney probably should be out there telling, and the stories that Disney refuses to tell. And the stagnant feeling of what there's st- of the stories that they do have. See, it's funny because with this film and Wish, mm-hmm. both the good guys turn out to be the bad guys. <laughs> both are the rulers that turn out to abuse the power. Right. And yet they could have put out Nimona and it would have been great as a 100th anniversary with this yeah. sort of. Re, not re, sort of retelling, but this recontextualizing of what a villain is and how you look yeah. at a villain and yeah. how you can move forward and see that kind of like spark in the light when you actually yeah. like get out and talk to people and get right. to know people and come to the true realization that we're just all trying to find and be ourselves yeah, in this I, chaotic world. I think it's an interesting, yeah, you're going to bring up a point. If you compare no Nimona and Wish back to back with each other it really shows you the difference in storytelling one feels such like a fresh a breath of fresh air even though it's steeped in some you know tradition mm-hmm. whereas the other one is just i think bogged down by that tradition and it feels like it's struggling against the weight of the disney legacy and you can see yeah like if they had chosen one of the other not that they were ever in a position where they were choosing <laughs> one or the other there was always going to be wish wish was yes. always going to be promoted as the thing but yeah, it's an interesting comparison to make. It's like one feels modern and the other feels like 
why are we still doing this? Not to say that Wish isn't great. I haven't seen it. It seems like it could be interesting. But no matter what, it was set up to fail by the Disney that is currently Disneying. And yeah, it's an interesting comparison to make. It is definitely is. Um, yeah. But yeah, you talked about all the like the subtext. Yeah. Well, uh, like you said, not really subtext, but it's plastered yeah. everywhere on it. Right. It's pretty, especially like in the color yeah. schemes of things. Yeah, it's very much. You see what they're going to do, but I think it's stronger for it because, like I said, mm-hmm. it's something Disney would never do. Like tell right. a story it doesn't... that bravely about a specific thing. Yeah, it doesn't like hint at it. No, it leans heavy into yeah. it, and it makes it all the better for it. Right. But. You have three more movies. I do. And my number three, and really my number two movie. Mm-hmm. Both, and really actually my number one movie. They all came out in the same time. <laughs> summer of movies. Yeah, it was. It was a summer of movies. And summer of good movies, too. But, but I think you ranked this. Well, no. You didn't rank this correctly. I think I would have made one swap. But I think you ranked this okay. <laughs> you you would have made one swap just to make it with your, <laughs> yeah. with your own list. But hey. <laughs> Barbenheimer. Definitely did rule uh, the summer. It ruled the but, conversation. But yes. And I saw both of these. And I spent way more money on one than the other. Yeah, both yes. Because I saw Oppenheimer, 70 millimeter, day one, filmed IMAX location, mm-hmm. huge print. Lucky enough to get tickets, actually, because yeah. I was, one, didn't know if I was going to go. Um, someone awesome pending, <laughs> and uh, the fact that I was able to go and swap not swap like garner these tickets like day of, like mm-hmm. I don't know, kind of helped with my experience and make yeah. it like a theater experience, a moment in a way it wouldn't yeah. have been. Yeah, it's like, well, it's the first time going back to an IMAX theater, but yeah, also it made it a moment. Um, the whole Barbenheimer means we talked about it made it a moment to be at the theater, to be yeah. in cinema. That even yeah. as soon as you walked in the doors that weekend, you saw everyone seeing one of these two films because they were all wearing the shirts. Everyone leaned heavily into it. This wasn't just some, yeah. like, I mean, it's Rise Star Story of the Year. It's not mm-hmm. put on by the studios. They didn't, like, market us as Barbenheimer. The fans did. People mm-hmm. who love movies did. They saw this on the release calendar and was like, like, Yes, they always put on counter-programming, but to have good counter-programming one against each other, it makes it just that much more special. Yeah. But the reason I put Marpenheimer <laughs> at number three, though, is that, yes, it is a Christopher Nolan film. It is set around World War II, but it also does the Christopher Nolan thing <laughs> of telling two separate stories back-to-back with two different filmmaking techniques. And it takes a lot from older Christopher Nolan films because he's going to steal from himself uh, in one, telling the story out of order, but also two, having the foresight to tell to craft it in a way that you can tell that's out of order, but also you can tell what is considered real and what's considered dramatization Mm -hmm. where he specifically made and crafted black and white IMAX film reels to say this has this is real this is black mm-hmm. and white this is factual whereas everything that's in color is more of a dramatization this has the wide colors this is the, the grayer this is the colorful interpretation mm-hmm. compared to the stark black and whiteness and the contrast of that in the same film 
helps amplifies that the world is not black and white. The, this decision is not like as gray as we'd like to see it. It right. is this colorful, weird, like pursuit of science that is both trying to create from theoretical into physical, but also the constant visualization of all the ripple effects that you see and the way it is shot, the cinematography, the art direction, the casting, Mm -hmm. it is superb in every single way. It is top tier filmmaking. Like this is auteur filmmaking with the big budget. This is also Christopher Nolan's first film with Universal Mm -hmm. um, following the Warner Brothers fallout from Tenet release. Right. So a lot of writing on this film and the fact that he's not going into the big sci-fi budget films first and instead focusing on a character-driven dramatization yeah. of, well, not even well-known events, just a single point in history mm-hmm. and how that one point, both forwards and backwards, as Christian Nolan likes to do in telling yeah. films, um, basically transcends one person's decision into the ripple effect mm-hmm. that we see t- in today's world. Yeah. And I think that the, so I haven't seen it, but the one takeaway I get from this is, is that everybody kind of expected it to be a, a very like Christopher Nolan style movie. But the thing that I think people weren't expecting is to be one of his best. See, like the reaction to it is like, oh yeah, even I expected like this to be very one thing and surprised me in some of the choices that he makes. And that's pretty cool for somebody who has such an established house style. I mean, we talked about Wes Anderson earlier. Mm-hmm. They're completely different visually, but they are similar in that auteur stamp that both of them have on their films. You know it when you see it in either case, right? Like you can basically say like, oh, I've seen five minutes of this. And yeah, this is Christopher Nolan as fuck. You know, like you get the vibe. But the fact that it still surprised people, I think is saying something about where he's at right now making these films. And I think you're right. I think part of that, is that he was so focused on one thing this time. He had a person that he was fascinated by, and he wanted to explore all sorts of angles on that person. Like you said, the factual angle, like what he was dealing with, what he was responsible for, and what he did. And then what was going on with him, with his mind? What was going on with the people that he interacted with? What was that like to be him? And I think that makes this a special kind of movie that it didn't have to be. And I think it's an interesting angle for Christopher Nolan and for a movie about Oppenheimer. Yeah, unlike his other World War II movie, Dunkirk, where yeah. it was set against a ticking time. It was set against a clocked backdrop, set against this kind of like factual, like mm-hmm. well-established World War II film. Um, Oppenheimer kind of go explores the entirety of a man, the complexity yeah. of man himself yes. and the complexity... Yeah. And the pursuit of science in yeah we can do this but should but we should do we? this and that's but the thing if i yeah. don't do this someone else will just go right. and do this so and that's the interesting is it better thing about, to just yeah. create it and be the one responsible for it or be the one to say i don't want to do it mm-hmm. but then doom it that responsibility to someone else right yeah it's i think nolan saw this as a conflicted man he's an incredibly conflicted man like he there's a lot saddled on him and you're right i think the film takes advantage of the fact that he is that complex and it does play that complexity back at the audience and be like well 
It's up to you to see whether you think that this all made sense to you to like put the pieces of this man together because you wouldn't, wouldn't want to be in his shoes and he didn't even want to be in his shoes. <laughs> it's, it makes for an interest, more interesting film, I would argue, than a lot of Nolan's work because he had the man, say what you will about his man's movies, but he has a tendency to talk, to make things that seem more complicated than they actually are. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, or I think to a lot of people create complication into... out of artifice, which is, I think, what a lot of people had problems with with Interstellar, especially where it's like you just slap this your own like set of rules on the end of this movie and just be like, I don't know what happened. Do you know what happened? And it's like no, that's, that's the care, uh, inception ending, right? Yeah, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people kind of went into this thinking like, okay, this is the creation of the atomic bomb, right? But then when it goes off halfway through the film, and you're like. Wait, there's still another hour and a half of just what? Are we filling this time? Yes. But even that is like all like so ingrained in like the character of Oppenheimer and just like I said, the the results of creating the atomic bomb that the story never just ends up and then they created the atomic bomb and we won (laughs) World War II. Right. Story doesn't actually end there. There's actually this whole other life that he lives post it yeah that's cool and that you know talking about it now actually makes me maybe want to see it which is not something (laughs) not a feeling i had before but you may have sold me on it um i might check it out sometime but uh when i carve out another three hours of my life (laughs) i know it is a long movie but anyway though that wasn't your number one though you have two more films yes like i said on the flip side of that of the Barb and Hyper coin is mm-hmm. indeed Barbie. And you've talked a lot about it yeah. already. It's your number two film. It's my number two film. Yep. Um, I'm going to say it's probably going to be the number one film of <laughs> media about podcast. I think it's yeah. easy. Let's to, be real to here. Point two. Yes. Cause it's that or Nimona. Yeah. But yeah, I don't need to talk at length of this. It is something that I think everyone should watch mm-hmm. young, old boy, girl right left whatever it's a story that everyone knows what a barbie is but like you said it definitely goes into like finding your own identity mm-hmm. what like what is a barbie is a barbie what you make it about or is a barbie all about her accessories mm-hmm. is ken an accessory to barbie largely and yes. their own person yeah right uh yeah i mean yes it can be seen as a marketing vehicle uh, for the legacy of Barbie, but to actually have all those homages to past Barbies, past versions of Barbies, past um, accessories, the different weird versions of different yeah. Barbie types that they put out, yeah, all thrown into this film is just a really, really weird and nice thing. <laughs> also, if you really like it, definitely watch the the uh, director's commentary. Yeah. Definitely goes into how weird it was even making this film mm-hmm. and just how weird Greta Gerwig's own life is and how she brought her own like style into this film in order to get made. Right. So cool. super weird, super charming, but not like weird Barbie weird. It's more <laughs> like interesting weird. Yeah. But. But not my number one film. No. And I obviously, if you know anything about you and if you know anything about the media boat podcast this should be the least surprising thing in the world because this film crossed over into music it crossed over into <laughs> video games crossed over into television and now here's crossing over into movies mm-hmm. spider-man 
Across the Spider Verse is my number one film. Spider Verse. No, stop it. (laughs) Stop it. We're gonna go beyond next time. Uh, so twenty, so twenty eighteen, huge film, huge year for films. You know you're winding up. You know you're winding up for a big speech when you start five years ago. (laughs) When I start five years ago, you know, Black Panther, Avengers: Infinity War. Huge Marvel films. You know, we talk about Disney having a huge year in 2018. And then here comes Sony Animation out of nowhere with this small film that no one really knew what to expect because it was Sony Animation at the time. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And yeah, caught me by surprise when they announced they were going to make a sequel. I was like, all right, I'm all for it. Give me more of this. Let me see where it's going. And then they announced that they were doing a sequel to that sequel. They're making the animated film twice, or well, not twice, but <laughs> back-to-back sequel. And I was like, okay, this is going to be some wild ride. And I had no idea how wild that ride would be. Mm-hmm. Across the Spider-Verse takes the Into the Spider-Verse momentum and continually swings forward. You get more of the Miles Morales and the Gwen Stacy romance side of things. You get more into the actual like canonicity (laughs) I got there of what makes Spider-Man Spider-Man. You get more into the Spider-Verse dwelling. You get even more Spider-Man in this film than you did in the Tom Holland version. Mm. Uh, And it just drives home the point that a film can much like uh, what Everything Everywhere All at Once did last year, a film can be so vast and so wide and span this entire multiverse of different characters, but at the same time, have a story and a plot that drives home to a central point of a character's identity fighting between being a teenager Mm -hmm. and having the responsibility of Spider-Man. And if you're out there saying, but it's the second film in a movie, in a trilogy, (laughs) don't you know the second film is always the best? (laughs) Terminator 2. I might push back on that. Godfather Part 2. Empire Strikes Back. World War 2. They're all the best sequels. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about that last one. Well, Don't worry. Once you see Part 3, number 2 will all make sense. (laughs) Anyway. Anyways, we talked um, about Oppenheimer already. Yeah, we did. <laughs> uh, across the Spider Verse, like when I got, like I told you mm-hmm. to go watch it. I told everyone to go watch it. I, I mean, said yeah, it when it came out. That was like the best thing that they put to animation. <laughs> How they did some of this animation is insane. The well, fact that Hobie exists alone. We found out a little bit how how they did this, and it was on the backs of poor, poor animators. We're not getting breaks, is how they did this. Oh, yes. Yeah, yes. We found all of that out. Uh, yeah. Not from the Sony leak, just from people talking. Yeah. Well, so, okay. What I will say is, that first one, yes, I am with you. Absolute instant classic. Amazing that they pulled it off the Spider-Man movie, the all Spider-Man movies. You don't need any other version of that story. It's so good. I also really enjoyed the sequel. You're not wrong. All of those things that you're saying is true. Like the animation spectacular, no pun intended. Like the things that they do with that world and with those characters and the different art 
like styles that they're incorporating and overlap each other and just like incredible action sequences crazy some of the wild most wild action sequences and set pieces i've seen in any movie period and it's endearing you love the characters you love the world it's funny but i think that it's getting a little unruly it's getting a little big it's starting to tear on the edges of the screen and some would, some people love that. It seems like you really embrace that chaos. So you're like ready for more because of just how big and crazy and wild it seems. To me, I felt my attention like get a little frayed at the at the edges of the of the of the movie screen. I felt a little overwhelmed by what it's trying to do. There's so much Spider-Man. There's so many references. There's so much to keep track of, and because it's a cliffhanger, there's even more coming. That can feel a little much for some people, me included. I love what they're trying to do. I love that they're, like you said, swinging for the fences on this. I love that they're putting every fiber of love that they have for Spider-Man, the character in the world, into this piece of art that they're creating. And it is art. It is art that you cannot replicate in any other media. This had to be a movie made the way it was. All that is true. As a movie-going experience, I think the first one just felt a little bit more balanced for me. It gave a little bit more breathing room for the characters. And it let it slowed down just enough for me to be like, catch my breath. This movie does not let you catch a breath in its second half. It just goes. And you're either there, strapped in in the roller coaster and ready for that kind of thing. Or you start wondering, this cannot be sustainable. And turns off. Turns out, as we found out from the animators, it's not. And it makes me worried that when we get to talking about this third one, they're going to want to up that ante even further. You're going to have, the, you know, Chris Moore back there telling his animators, actually, no, I want it this way. Actually, no, do this better, bigger. These are real people who are making this film. And I'm starting to worry that maybe the ambitions are outstripping the labor. And you have to have a car. If this year proved anything, 2023, you have to have a conversation between the art and the labor for this thing to work for these people to live. So I felt little like something like real. The real world was taking me out of the Spider-Man moment a little bit, both in the experience of watching the film and the discourse around the film. Not saying that we should always, you know, include the discourse around a film when we're talking about a film. But it affects how it's viewed. And for me, all that stuff can like combines for me to just be like, yeah, I enjoyed it. And yeah, I loved it. But that first one just felt like a different moment for me. And this I, I'm getting a little bit of whiff of diminishing returns, even though I am very excited for what they could do with it and proud of what they were doing and what they pulled off. And it is definitely a masterpiece that they created. It's it's all of that. Yeah. And a bag of chips. <laughs> yeah. I guess it's whether or not you're thinking too much about that bag of chips where it starts crumbling in your mouth and you're probably like, mm, I don't know about these chips. You're right. That, that's more like a baggage bag. of chips. Uh, it, the, the only difference is, is how many people does it take to make a bag of chips? <laughs> and how are they doing on that factory line? I don't okay? know. Did you watch Flamin' Hot? No, I didn't. <laughs> that, that was out this year. 
did. It did. It's true. Um, uh, no, yeah. I, I'm with you though. It's an amazing piece of work, and it's an incredible thing to look at and experience and listen to and just live in for you know two hours. It's just an amazing thing that they can keep that they made another one of these, and it blew the first one out of the water in so many aspects. Like, it's amazing. I'll give you that, and the fact that it, they can do it, incredible. I mean, also just like the writing in itself. Just mm-hmm. the, that's where it starts with the script mm-hmm. being in the WGA. Yes. Uh, it just starts with a solid script, the jokes, the commentary, the both flashes back to the previous film and the what it sets up for the future film. All within this one film is very, very enjoyable. Mm-hmm. That's one thing that I rank all my movies is would I watch it again? Would I pay to go see this movie again? And it is by far and away the one thing I watched three or four times already yeah. since it's come out. That's fair. And then I listened to the music for it. That soundtrack is great. Probably not as good as the first one, but what Metro Boomin does with it, <laughs> I just keep listening to it. Yeah. Technically, that was my number one album that I listened to the <laughs> most this year. And then I played all of Spider-Man 2, and that was my game of the year. So yeah, like I said, it crossed everything, all <laughs> sorts of medium uh, from for me. So That's Miles fair. Morales, Spider-Man, that is my number one film. All right. Well, there you go. So we have to pick one. But like you said, this was pretty easy of a year. I mean, yeah, a part of me does want to honor the thing that Nimona ended up being. Mm-hmm. But let's be real. It's probably Barbie because just like the sheer momentum of that thing, both, you know, in the film industry as a whole and the movie itself, the like the weirdness of it and the wild and the big swings that it takes and the just the fact that it's like nothing else. It's like no other movie this year. Like it it takes almost like the swings that Spider-Man is doing in live and in, uh, in animation. In animation, it's taking those swings in live action. And it's just like so weird and colorful and wild and funny and imaginative and also thought provoking and like in deep and layered. And the fact that, yeah, it created a moment and a like a, like a, yeah. Cultural impact. zeitgeist. Yeah. Zeitgeist. It's a really good way of putting it. It's just, Yeah. And the fact that, yeah, that will definitely be a movie I return to. It'll, it's it's something I've been contemplating watching again this very week. I haven't done it yet, but maybe I will. So, yeah, it's I mean, like on Max, you have all the like behind the scenes features of mm-hmm. it, too, which I've got through about yeah. half of them already. It's cool stuff uh, that, that that's all available to us. And yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty I'm pretty confident about putting that as our number one. Yeah, uh, but let's get into some honorable mentions real quick, because, yeah. as you mentioned, this year full of ips and lots <laughs> of dealing with merchandising yeah so like you said we had super Mario brothers movie come out and just dominate the box office but there's also this like weird little section of movies based off of products mm-hmm. like tetris this year like air of the air jordan story yeah uh flaming hot i mentioned and like the beanie baby bubble <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just just like we're make a like a film about products yeah and it's not thing. really product placement but it's like the story fictionalized very fictionalized version of these uh mostly untrue stories 
pretty much. Uh, yeah. And then we had, I mean, like I said, Taylor Swift Terrors, but also a lot of returning IPs like Ant-Man and the Wasp, uh, Quantumania, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, Shazam, Fury of the Gods, that film kind of finally came out. Same with The yeah. Flash finally came out. Uh, Fast X also came out this mm-hmm. year. Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, Part 1 came out this year. And then that title is going to get changed yeah. <laughs> eventually. Uh, Transformers, Rise of the Beasts, Creed 3 also this year. Hunger Games. Yeah. Like I said, lots of IPs that came out this year. Um, Scream 6, I think. Yeah, uh, five six. this year. Six is the one that's having currently some casting issues as some people no, have backed out of the project. Scream six was this year. Oh, no, the six was this Scream year. Scream seven, seven is, is next year. Okay. Yeah. Um, Trolls got a sequel. None right. got a sequel. The Marvels got a sequel. Insidious got a sequel. Like, <laughs> it's like we talked about the Hollywood machine. This was the year for sequels to return. Yeah. I mean, that being said, though, a lot of these were largely disappointing, though. This was also a very volatile box office year. We had a lot of record setters, but at the same time, you had a lot of movies that really felt like swings and misses. All of the DC films, for example. Largely most of the Marvel films. Mm-hmm. Like, there was just underperformer after underperformer. And it really kind of puts into stark contrast the films that are working and the films that are not working. And it's really hard to discern what is behind the reason why what's working and what's not. But good thing is, is that we're not the studios and we don't have to make that decision. <laughs> we no, don't have we to figure that. it out. No, we, we just, just got to talk about benefits. it. Yeah. Um, do you have any specific movies that you saw you want to shout out that didn't quite make up your uh, top five? Some proper honorable mentions? Um, I have a few. Proper honorable mentions? No, I don't think so. Oh, anything you want to shout out that you liked? But didn't I mean, have, I just like, shouted number out a six bunch of and them. Seven? I just uh, I just started out a bunch of them, uh, but yeah, like Tetris, I really liked, even if it was like okay. super fictionalized. I mean, it wasn't super fictionalized. I know a lot of the real story there. I think they just kind of pumped up the drama of it when it wasn't really that dramatic. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but no, but I think you saw a lot more that you want to shout out too. I uh, just a, like, just a few, just a just three. I want to shout out uh, Sofia Coppola's Priscilla. That's my yep. solid number six. Just looking outside of my. Top five, I really enjoyed it. Um, really well shot as well. Um, then you have, I wanted to shout out a couple of comedies. Uh, no Hard Feelings, which you did not like. Did not I like thought it. was a good time. And uh, Quiz Lady on Hulu. Uh, fun, fun, fun comedy film with uh, Aquafina and Sandra O. Oh. If you're into that kind of thing, I recommend it. Um, yeah, and then, yeah, we kind of already talked about Super Mario and how that was a big disappointment. Um, um, I will shout out Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. That's from last Probably year. Probably would have made my list last, <laughs> last year. Last year, if you'd seen it before the list. Yeah. It came out on Christmas mm-hmm. and didn't get a chance to see it before my list, but lots of good animation in that one. Probably would have put that one on my list as like five there, there. last year. Um, and lastly, Leave the World Behind. Yeah. I know yeah, yeah. I got some like really like iffy um, kind of commentary on it, but. The art direction and the uh, the art direction that they do with it, and a lot of the production, like outside of the characters, like that mm-hmm. they add, I think adds to like the heightened layer of chaos that does go on in that film. Well, cool. Then, if that's all the honorable mentions we can uh, list, then that's wait, probably... wait. There's one last one that oh, one last mention. one. 
Okay. Ruby Gilman, teenage Kraken. <laughs> Ruby Gilman, teenage Kraken. You just wanted an excuse to say that. Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, so that's it. That will then wrap it up. Thank you for joining us for this special wrap-up edition movie style of the Media Boat Podcast. That's it. We did all four categories. Or is it? Because we have one more special show in our wrap-up series for y'all that will premiere on New Year's Eve. And that yep. will be the show in which we look to the future for once. We're done looking at the past. We're done living in the past, you know? We are forward-thinking, and we're going to look towards the year that will be of 2024. So we'll take a look at some things, like things that we're looking forward to, some things that haven't happened yet. Also talk maybe a little bit about ourselves. I don't know where we're at, where we're feeling at the end of the calendar year, and what's in the cards for the future for us as well as maybe some changes that we'll make to the show's format in 2024 who knows we got a whole new season of podcasts for you so who knows what they'll look like but for now we have this uh this uh wrap-up series that's available to you so all three episodes in the past that we've done which is movies uh today and then television last week the week before that video games and before that even music you can listen to all of those right now they should be on your feed as we speak and you can listen to the future one next week you can also listen to our regular shows we still do those too a proper episode of the media book podcast will still be here on tuesday so tune in for that and then uh in the meantime that is the season finale that we have coming season up this finally week. uh we'll come to you this tuesday so uh yeah. get excited for that We'll have one last regular ass episode for the year, yes. and then we'll have our end of the year on Sunday, yeah. and then we get into the next season. Yeah, because this train yeah. don't stop, and this train does stops this sweater for no one. <laughs> Neither does that sweater. You're right; it's not stopping. Yes. All right. So, so, thank you for joining us. If you want to see us in video form, YouTube search me a vote podcast on there. If you want to see hear us in audio form, both the regular and their special wrap-up episodes, search Media Boat Podcast in your podcatcher of choice. Social media, we're on Twitter slash X at Media Boatcast. If you want to email us and yell us yell at us about any of these choices, mediaboatpodcast at gmail.com is where you can do all that. So with that, we will see you guys next time for a regular episode if you tune into that or our proper last wrap-up episode at the last possible day of the year. And enjoy unless your holidays. Unless you're living in the future, in yes. which all case that is all available right now. Okay, bye. <laughs>